Hey, can I point out a couple of things? First of all, if you've got a worship folder here this morning, you can go ahead and take this out because there's a place to take notes in there. Uh, I want to point out something that's not in there and something that is in there. First of all, uh, there's something that's not in there, so don't bother looking for it. We're at a phase in our church's life where we're looking for some more men to join our elder team. And so if you have someone you think would serve well, who's gifted spiritually to serve as a leader in our church and who would serve with great moral character, there's one of these forms that you can pick up at the Connecting Point table. It's an elder nomination form that you can prayerfully walk through and consider this person or people that you want to submit to be considered. Turn it in by October 5th, and we'll consider the person you're putting forward. And something that is in your worship folder that I want to point out There is a class listed in here. It's called Doctrine. Don't let that scare you. Doctrine. I used to, as a kid, I thought, whoa, this must be boring or really over my head. Doctrine is simply teaching, and it's a great class. We started last week with this, just going through some big teachings of of our faith. Each class stands by itself. So if you missed one, it's okay. You don't have to feel like you're going to be lost because each one is self-enclosed. So you can come to the ones. You can catch ones that you missed later because we're going to continually offer this class uh, and by the way, if you look at the cover of the bulletin, this is like finding the gold Yoda can. It's finding your picture on here. So there you go. You can take notes in there. So we're talking about I am the church. What do you think of when I say church? What, what mental image pops into your mind? What do you think of? I don't know. For maybe for some of you, maybe you think of a building. Anybody recognize this church building? Go ahead and say it out loud if you know who, where, what that is. Yeah, actually, Notre Dame in Paris. Notre Dame is in Indiana. That's Notre Dame, right? And speaking of cathedrals, anybody recognize this cathedral, this famous one in Orange County, California? The Crystal Cathedral. I don't know if it's still called that now that the Catholic Church owns it, but yeah, the Crystal Cathedral. If you grew up or or were alive in the 70s or 80s, anybody recognize this church building? Yeah, you see Paw and Half Pint and all that coming out of there. Little House on the Prairie. This is the church slash schoolhouse in Walnut Grove. Some of you, when you think of church, it's not a building that comes to your mind. You think of like a weekend event. You're like, church, it's what we do on Sunday, or maybe Saturday night, church, maybe it's mass, or it's connecting with friends and family, it's dinner after church at your mom or your grandma's house, it's, it's like what you do on the weekend, it's what's an event. For some of you, maybe your picture of church is like the first place you ever went to church. I don't know if any of you like would say, well, that's this place, but maybe the picture that comes to your mind of church is, you know, where you grew up. I know I think of that sometimes. I, um, I think, like, for our children who are growing up here, their mental map of church is going to include the smell of popcorn, which is just <laughs> awesome, right? Where, wherever they are for the rest of their life, somebody says church, they're going to think of going to the movie theater. I think it's great. Now, I was thinking about my daughters, Alyssa and Abby. Like, they've not grown up in a traditional church building their entire lives. Alyssa's almost 18. She, for the first couple of years of her life, we were in a real, ch- a real church building, but she doesn't remember it. So my girls, when we think of church, we think of setting up and tearing down at an elementary school or a middle school or a KC hall or being in a warehouse that we converted to a church or a theater. It's, and I, I like that, that, that a lot of our kids and a lot of us have that as part of our mental makeup. I don't know, maybe for you, like, do you think of church? And it's not a really a pleasant thought. You've got some negative connotations that go along with church because you've got, hopefully in your past, but you've got some experiences with church that were not that great. And so... Church just kind of makes you cringe because you just, you, you think, oh, I just think of church. And it's like, for some people, it's like the longest hour of the week. Hopefully you don't think of that here, but it's just, oh, I just think of church, I think boring. Or you think stress, like the stress of trying to get your, your children out the door and to dress in church on time. Or 
the stress of trying to get your spouse up and dressed and out the door to church on time or the stress of just, I don't even want to go. So you think of arguing with your parents about having to go to church or, or you just think about guilt because it was just drilled in, you got to be there. And so you just feel guilty because you're not there as much as you should be. Or so maybe that's part of your mental picture. And so it's a negative thing. I guess it's just fair to say that all of us have a wide range of experiences with the idea of church because we've got so many different histories and so many things that we've gone through in our lives. And so because we all have these different mental maps of that, I think it's fair to say a lot of us have different ideas about what it means to be a member of a church. And, and not all of us, if we were to survey every one of us, maybe even has an accurate view of what it means to be a part of a church. I've, I've run a lot of people who don't. I'll give you a perfect example of this. Back when I was in high school, I was at work one night and working with another guy who was older than me. He was like college age, young adult. We were talking about religion, and, and I just happened to share with him I was a Christian. He says, oh, I'm a Christian too. And so I, I, go, I named the church I went to. And, uh, and but then he said he was a Christian, so I immediately asked the obvious question, like, well, what church do you go to? And he looked at me with this incredulous smile, like I just asked him what two plus two was. He goes, we're members of the same church you are, duh. I'm like, so immediately I'm like embarrassed, like, oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. So here's the thing. Here's what I'm thinking. I never said out loud, but I'm thinking this, like, our church isn't that big. And I've been going there, like, since we started going to church, I've been there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Every time the doors were open, we've been there, and I've never seen you there. Now i got to think, wait a minute, and this is all going through my head. I did actually see this family there once. It was several years before, and it was one time, and I honestly thought they were visiting. So next time I was at church, I asked, like, one of the leaders or one of the pastors or somebody, I said, hey, do you know this family? They're like, they say they're members here, but I've never seen them. And, and the guy I was talking to was like, I don't know who they are. We literally pulled out the membership roles, looked at the list, and oh yeah, sure enough, about before I'd started going there, maybe 10, 12, 15 years before, this entire family had gone to that church, our church, been baptized in the church. So were they members? Technically, yes. But in their mental view of what it meant to be a part of a church, membership was having your name on a list, but it didn't mean you actually had to show up to be a part of the church. That's probably the first time I encountered something I've run into a lot since then. And that is that a lot of people have different ideas about what it means to be a member or a part of a church. And a lot of people have these perceptions of what it means to be a part of a church that are not necessarily biblically accurate. A lot of people just think this or don't even think anything at all. And then here's the Bible over here and there's this huge disconnect and it creates problems because we're just not on the same page. Uh, I just remember several years ago, I think it was 1999 to be correct, NASA lost something very important. Uh, You know what it's like to lose something, right? Isn't that frustrating? You ever tore your house up looking for your car keys? In my experience, like as soon as I go out and buy something to replace what I've lost, I find the thing that I lost. Anybody else like that? Well, NASA lost something pretty important. It was very expensive. This thing that they lost was worth $125 million dollars. I don't know if you were around in 1999. They lost the Mars Climate Orbiter. You remember that? It's really frustrating not knowing what the weather is on Mars right now. Like, how do I know what to wear to work? And wh- what do I wear to school? I just don't know. Because they lost this. How did they lose it? Well, they got the Mars Climate Orbiter all the way to Mars, which is a big accomplishment in and of itself. And then when it came time to put it into orbit around Mars, that's when things went haywire. So they sent the command through the computers to to launch the rockets to get it into orbit, and something went crazy, and the orbiter actually went too deep into the atmosphere. So we think one of two things happened. 
it either burned up and just scattered across the planet, or it shot right past Mars and it's orbiting the sun right now. Either way, we just don't know where it is, which is like, how do you just lose something worth $125 million? Well, we actually know what happened. This is embarrassing, but this is true. We had two groups of NASA scientists working on this project. One was here and one's here. You got Lockheed working in there as contractors. So you got these scientists. One group that was writing the software for this was producing outputs in, in metric terms. The other group over here who's working on the same software is producing results that come out in English units. These are rocket scientists, right? Shouldn't somebody have caught this before now? So that's what happened. They weren't on the same page. So what do you do now? Like, do you just go, my bad, can I borrow another $125 million? Yeah, I, I look at that, and I think for people to be on the same page, we've got to be talking in the same language. And so that's why we're doing this message series, I Am the Church. We're going to get on the same page as a church about what it means to be a member of a church. This is so important that we do that, because when it comes to being a, a member of a church, if you were to ask people, what they thought, even maybe people in this room, we're going to get answers in metric, in English, and I don't even know what. So I want to get us on the same page. Because there's, there's just a lot of misperceptions about what it means to be a part of a church. I'll give you one classic example. You know, one, peop one thing that people think about church, especially people who are Christians, is that church participation is optional. I mean, you take it or leave it. And I'm talking about Christians here. A few years ago, I saw something that um, I've seen several times since. I don't know, if, I can't remember if it was a bumper sticker, but there's a slogan that was going around. It said, Jesus, yes, church, no. You've seen it, like on this bumper sticker, I've seen it on t-shirts with the face of Jesus, Jesus, yes, and on the backside of the t-shirt, there was like a church building with a circle and a line through it, church, no. A lot, I see it on Facebook. A lot of people in, in take in this viewpoint, and what they're saying is, I buy into Jesus, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, I love Jesus, fine. I just don't need the church to do my relationship with Jesus. You know, I, I, I think Jesus is great, but I don't really need the church. Statistics bear this out. There's a lot of people who think this way. Barna released the results of a study this spring. They surveyed millennials. These are people who are 30 years of age and younger. And of all these millennials who were surveyed who say, I'm a Christian, only two out of every 10 said church participation is important to them. Two out of 10. Which really... That number is going to go up as millennials get older because every generation, boomers and Xers and everybody, they, they start low, and as we get older, we see more value in participating in church. However, 2 out of 10 is the lowest it's ever started. And it's not just millennials. Don't think I'm knocking you if you're a millennial. I'm not. Because another study sh showed that if you were to take all Americans and put them in this theater and say to every American, raise your hand if you think you're a Christian. Like 8 out of 10 of us would say, I'm a Christian. So we asked the people who are not Christians to leave the room. Now we got only Christians in the room, right? Now we asked this same group, how many of you think church attendance is important? Only about five out of those, only about half out of that group would say church attendance is important. And this is the shocker. Any given Sunday, only two or three out of every ten Christians are in church. So I'm not knocking anybody. I just think there's a whole lot of people who are saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't think church has much to do with my, my Christian faith. So I, we'll, we'll get into later whether that's an accurate viewpoint or not. But I really like what Rick Warren said. He said trying to, to be a Christian without a church family is kind of like trying to play football without a team. I would like to see somebody play one play in the NFL to say, I'll, I don't need the other 10 guys. I'll just go by myself against that other. One play, right? You need a church family. But that's not the only misperception people have about church. You know, another thing I run into 
A lot of people think church attendance somehow earns favor with God. Like it's a way to get extra credit with God. These are people who are saying yes to church, but they think that it's somehow something that they've got to do to get God happy with them. If I put it very bluntly, I'd say it this way. If I want to go to heaven, I better go to church, is the viewpoint a lot of people have. I don't know, maybe you've thought that way before, or maybe you think that way now. I've talked to enough people who do feel that way, and it, it's kind of like I get the idea, nobody ever says this, it's kind of just an assumption running in the background that somehow if I miss church, I put my salvation in question. So if I miss a Sunday, I better do something to make it up. Maybe I can earn some extra credit with God by volunteering in the middle school ministry. That's hard. <laughs> I get a lot of extra credit for that. Sorry, junior hires. I love you. You're my favorite people in the whole world. But not everybody feels that way about you. So just understand that. So it's kind of like people who think this way, and maybe you catch yourself doing this from time to time. It's like, you know what? If I want God to keep his end of the bargain and save me, I better do my end of the bargain and show up for an hour or two and suffer through a church service occasionally. So the idea is I'm somehow doing this to make God happy. Now, believe me, that doesn't describe everybody because there's a whole other end of that spectrum, too. There's a whole other group of people who they may not even realize they think this way, but they think of church membership like being a member at Costco. I paid my 40 bucks. Where's my benefits? Being a part of a church, like, I expect the church to be there for me whether or not I'm there for it. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who think that way, too. Church is all about the benefits. I just find it so ironic. In my experience, the people who complain first, loudest, and the most are the people who are least invested in the church family with their participation, their energy, their passion, their attendance, their, their financial giving, their service. I don't know why that is, but the people who have the least hand in what goes on are the people who complain the loudest. Like, somehow they've got a say in what goes on. And I find the converse of that is true. The people who are most involved usually are too busy doing stuff to, to complain about stuff. But that's just my experience. I don't know if you're honest with yourself. Maybe you've held one of these viewpoints before. Maybe you hold one now. And listen, I'm not judging you. Please don't think I'm scolding you or something like that. I accept you like, like you are. We accept each other here like Christ accepts us. But I am going to challenge you to move out of that mindset. Over the next few weeks as we look at what it really means to be a part of a church family, I hope that you would be open to moving from where you're at to a, a different viewpoint about this as we study this and unlock this. There's more to being a part of a church than just being a spectator. You know, just, you better impress me today, Brian. You better bring it. Or to be a consumer. Or just to say somehow I'm earning favor with God. Or that I don't even need this. Maybe, maybe there's something that you're missing out. Maybe church is a, a gift to us. Well, here's what we're going to start with today. And here's my contention for today, if you want to write this down. We're not going to understand church membership if we don't understand what the church itself is. If we don't know what it is we're a part of, we'll never fully understand what it is that we do here. And if we're going to understand what the church is, we need to look at what Jesus had in mind when he established the church. It's really important to go back and do that. One of the things that's very important to us here at Connection is that we go back to this. I mean, this is the source of everything that we do. A, a river is purest at its source. We always want to go back and say, what did Jesus have in mind? What did he teach us to do? What attitudes did he want us to embrace? What practices did he say we should do? What did the early church do? What did they do that they shouldn't have done that we want to make sure we don't do? And so we go back and we seek out what Jesus wants for his church. Because here's the truth of the matter. Jesus is the head of this church, not me. He's the senior minister of the church. And because he is the head of the body, the church, he gets to set the mission, the vision, 
the direction, the practice of our church. We just simply come to him and say, what is it that you want? So with the the time I've got left today, here's what I want to do. I want to go back to a teaching that Jesus gave about his church before there ever was a church. He gave a teaching about what it was going to be and a prediction about what it would be. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 16. If you've got a Bible app on your phone, Matthew 16 and 18 is what you're looking for. Or I'm sorry, 16 13 is what you're looking for. And, and these verses will be on the screen. You can just follow along too if you don't have a Bible with you. That's okay. So let's go ahead and just look at the first couple of verses to get the context. It says here in Matthew 16 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied to him, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And we'll stop there. All right, let's get the context here. If you were to picture a map of Israel, where they're at in Caesarea Philippi is about as far north in Israel as you can go. They're up in this city. Caesarea Philippi, about the time Jesus was born, was given from Caesar Augustus as a gift to King Herod the Great who was the ruler of this region. He gave it to him as a gift for his loyalty. Herod the Great repaid the loyalty to Caesar Augustus by renaming the city Caesarea, Caesar City. And they called it Caesarea Philippi because they wanted to distinguish it from the Caesarea that was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Caesarea Philippi sat at the base of Mount Hermon, which was like 9,000 feet high, snow-capped, beautiful place for a city. Herod the Great also honored Caesar Augustus by building this beautiful white marble temple there in the city where people could go worship Caesar Augustus if they wanted. Caesarea Philippi is a great place if you wanted to be religious because you could worship just about anyone or anything you wanted there. They had temples to everything. And so can you just imagine Jesus sitting outside the city with his disciples, sitting in a circle. They're just talking. He's got his closest 12 disciples with him. And he asks them two questions. First question he asks them is, guys, who, pe- who do people say the Son of Man is? Which at first reading sounds a little weird because it's like, Jesus is talking about himself in the third person. Remember Bob Dole says, and Bob Dole, is Jesus really going to talk about himself in the third person? Because he's son of man, it's Jesus, obviously. And then you go like, does Jesus really not know what people are saying about him? Can he not hear what the disciples are hearing? Jesus asks these two questions that that we're going to get into, and I want you to understand something. Jesus is not seeking information. He's like the greatest teacher who's ever lived. He's not seeking information that he doesn't know. It's not like he cares what other people are saying about him. He's seeking an aha moment for his disciples. So, so who are people saying that I am? Because he's letting them talk it through. And, and, and what they start saying is, they think you're one of the prophets come back. Now, they're not talking about reincarnation here. It's not like literally Jeremiah has come back to life in the body of Jesus or Elijah or John the Baptist. That's not, they mean more like the spirit of those prophets is in you. Like the spirit of a man who's not afraid to stand up to the powers that be and say, you're doing things wrong. And Jesus certainly had that. So people are like, we have an honest to God prophet among us again, like they had hundreds of years ago. So people are saying, they think you're a prophet. Now Jesus goes on and look what he asked the second question. And then verse 15, he says, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter, Simon Peter, he's like one of the the leaders of the group. He's a guy who often said or did things that made other people cringe. You ever got friends like that? Just don't say anything. (laughs) Peter is often that guy, but this is not one of those moments. This is a moment that made everyone proud. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And that answer was awesome. Listen to how Jesus responds to him. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, go ahead and keep this verse up there. It's on the screen here. Why did Jesus say that Simon Peter was blessed? You don't have to say it out loud, but think about it. Was he blessed because he got the answer right? No, he got the answer right, but he's blessed by because of why he knew the correct answer to say here. Jesus said, Peter, you're blessed because you didn't figure this out on your own. You did not intuit this on your own. You're not that smart. One of the other guys didn't whisper it in your ear and tell you the right answer so you could say it out loud. Peter, the only reason you knew what to say there was because my Father in heaven told you. How cool would that be that you, of all the people on the planet, know something that you can only know because God told you? If God had not told you, you wouldn't know, so you're let in on a mystery, and Peter is the guy that God honored with this insight that Jesus, he's not just a guy, he's not just a prophet, he's actually the Christ, the Son of God. Blessed are you, Simon. And then Jesus goes on to give a stunning prophecy. He says, upon this confession you've given, I'm going to build my church. And it's going to be such a powerful church that hell itself will not be able to resist the onslaught of my church, the gates of Hades. What's Jesus talking about there? I don't know what you think of the gates of Hades. Maybe you think of like Mordor or, you know, something like Lord of the Rings. And like, or maybe like Jesus and his disciples are surrounded. It's not like that at all. Jesus is saying the church is going to be so powerful that not even the gates of hell will be able to stay closed against the onslaught of the church. Jesus is saying, not even my death will stop the growth of the church. Not even your martyrdoms will stop the growth of the church. No matter how many of my followers in the future die, that will not stop the growth of the church because I'm coming back to life and everyone who believes in me will also come back to life. Hades will not be able to hold on to the soul of anyone who passes away because they're all coming back to life in a real body in a real place. My church will grow. It's a stunning prophecy. And this, is, this should give you goosebumps because Jesus said this 2,000 years ago. You sitting here right now are a fulfillment of these words that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago. He had you in mind when he said this 2,000 years ago. Now, here's where this starts to get real for us, and this is where it gets interesting. If you were to start in Genesis and start reading through the Bible, this is the very first place you will find the word church in the English translation of the Bible. That's the first time it ever happens in the Bible. Here's something else you might find interesting. All those things we talked about at the beginning of the message that might come to your mind when you think of church, Jesus probably didn't have any of those in his mind when he said, I will build my church. This is where things get really interesting. There are just a very few times when it's helpful to lift the hood on the Bible and actually look at the original languages that it was written in because it wasn't written in English. People didn't speak English 2,000 years ago. This is one of those times where I want to do this. The Old Testament of the Bible was written in Hebrew because that's what all the Israelites spoke at that time. The New Testament was written in Greek because 2,000 years ago, everybody in the world knew Greek in the same way that pretty much everybody in the world today knows English. It was a very common language. The Bible was written in the most accessible language possible. So, you just picture this in your mind. Matthew, 
is sometime later remembering this conversation because Matthew was in that circle when Jesus gave that prophecy about his church. Matthew's remembering what Jesus said. He's writing in Greek what Jesus said, and he's writing it down, and he's saying, and upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. That's literally the Greek word that Matthew wrote down. And of what Jesus said, Jesus may have actually been speaking in Aramaic, but he translated it into Greek, ecclesia. Now, catch this. Ecclesia is not a religious word. Ecclesia, we translate it to church in the English Bible, but it's not a religious word at all. It simply means a gathering, an assembly of people called together for a specific cause or purpose. So, if you were alive in the first century and you were in the military and your unit got called up, your unit would be called an ecclesia in Greek. It was just an assembly. We're, we're called up. If you were sitting in school and the principal says, I need everybody in the gym, when you get there for your assembly in Greek, it would have been called an ecclesia. We're just here, a group of people for a common cause or purpose. In the Old Testament of the Bible, when the Jewish people translated it into Greek, when they talked about the people of Israel, they called them an ecclesia, a group of people. So when you talk about the word that is in the Bible that we translate into the word church in English, that word ecclesia never meant building. It always meant group of people, a gathering of people. So let's go back to Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my group of people who are gathered for a specific cause and purpose. I will build my group of people who all have this in common, that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's really what he prophesied, and he said, I'm going to build a group of people. He didn't predict that he would build a cathedral or a chapel in the woods or a building on the corner. He said, I will build groups of people who have this in common, me. That's what he said. So I got a question for you, and maybe it's a question you've already thought of. If the original Greek language that our Bible is based on said ecclesia, gathering of people, why does my English Bible say church, which we automatically think of as church building? If you're asking that question, as we answer that, it kind of gets to the root of why so many people have the wrong idea about what it means to be a part of a church. Now, to answer this, I need to fast forward from Jesus. He's here at 33 A.D., I need to fast forward to the year 1522. It's like 500 years ago for us. This, is a, this guy right here, this is William Tyndall. Lived in England. He was an incredibly intelligent man, well-educated, spoke several languages. He was well-educated. He was a pastor in, in a church in London for a while. William Tyndall got the crazy idea that people in England should be able to read the Bible in their own language, in English. The fact that you're able to read the Bible in English today, you have a great debt that you owe to William Tyndall because he's the first guy to ever translate the Bible from the original languages into English. See, at the time that William Tyndall was a leader in the church, you know where you went to find a Bible? They were literally chained to a pulpit. Or you could go to a library if you were clergy and see a Bible, but the average person was not allowed to see a Bible. So he thought, I'm going to change that. And so he thought, I think that regular men, women, and children should be able to read the Bible in their own language. So he started, and he did something interesting. He didn't take the current Bible of the day, which was you know, Latin, which nobody could have read it anyway if they got a hold of one because nobody spoke Latin anymore, the Latin Vulgate. So he said, I'm going to go back to the original Greek and Hebrew transcripts that we've got, the very ancient documents. I'm going to translate them into English instead of a copy of a copy of a copy. 
a very interesting thing happened when he got to Matthew 16, 18. He's reading the Greek, and he's translating it into English. Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And he, and he looked at that word, and he looked at the Latin Vulgate, and the Latin Vulgate had a word there that meant church building. He looked at the German translations, and they had a word there that meant building, kirka, that we, we translate into church. So he's going, the Greek word here is ecclesia, gathering of people. Why do all of these translations have the wrong word? So, this is really interesting. When he translated the Bible into English, William Tyndall got it right. He used the word congregation there. In fact, here's an interesting fact. If you look at the William Tyndall translation of the Bible into English, you will not find the word church at all. Because William Tyndall got it right. Ecclesia does not mean church building. It means gathering of people. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> the powers that be were not happy with William Tyndall translating the Bible into a language people could understand. They'd, you think, well, why, why in the world would Christian leaders be bothered by that? Actually, they did one worse. They executed William Tyndall for this. They burned him at the stake and strangled him at the same time. <laughs> it's like, he's already dead. What are you doing? Why did, where is that in the Great Commission, by the way, that church leaders are supposed to execute people you don't agree with? Go down and make disciples of all the nations. If they don't agree with you, execute them. That shows you what the world of William Tyndall was like by the year 1522. The powers that be in the church were so concerned that if people could actually read in the Bible what the church was supposed to be like, they would not submit to the church leadership because it was such a corrupt system, which illustrates why it's so important for us to continually go back to the Bible and refresh our image of what church means. To ask Jesus, what is it you have in mind for us in 2014 as we gather together every Sunday? This is why we have to do this. Because we lose the impact of what church is supposed to be in our lives when we forget what Jesus originally intended. Jesus meant the church to be a group of people. Us. Not a place. You know, sometimes I get funny looks from people like, like, where's your church? And I'll tell them, well, we meet in a movie theater down in Darden Prairie. It's next to the, you know, like the Target and JCPenney. And they're like, nobody says it. But a lot of people look at me like, Really? Is, is that okay? I mean, can you have church in a movie theater? And some people are like, look at me like, does God know that you're meeting in a movie theater? Because I'm pretty sure he's not going to be happy. Like, yeah. And now you know why it's okay. Because Jesus doesn't care where his church meets. He just cares that we meet. Because we are the church. We're like dandelions. We can spring up anywhere. And we do. Because his church will grow and go and go. And nothing will be able to stop it. Because we're the church. Wherever we gather, that's where the church is at. Yeah, I was, um, I was thinking about something. Sandy Pallich, dear member of our church, passed away recently from cancer. We just had her memorial service yesterday. I was thinking about a conversation she had. You know, she was saying before she passed away, like, how much she wished she could get back to church one more time. And I really wish she could have, too. She was saying this, and there were, like, an, a couple of our elders there sharing communion and family and church members around. And she said, I just wish I could get to church one more time. And her sister-in-law said, Sandy, look, the church came to you. See, that's, that's what church is. We are a body of people who meet together. And it's not a place where you come to be entertained. And it's not a place where you come to earn credit with God. It's not a place that's optional because it's us. And we're part of each other. And so Jesus envisioned that we would be a group of people who would come together and we would we would worship together and we would sing songs together. We would study the Bible together and pray together. 
we would celebrate together. We would meet in each other's homes and eat meals together. We would mourn with each other. We would wait for Jesus to come back together because that's church, us, together. And I want you to see it like that, and I want you to be a part of that. Will you pray with me? Father, I'm so thankful that, first of all, you gave us Jesus, and you you did something that I don't think any of us could maybe do, and that is you sacrificed the thing that was absolutely most precious to you, the life of your son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be forgiven of our sins and that we could somehow be made holy and right and perfect again, even though we've just sinned so much and, and disobeyed you so much. And I'm thankful that Jesus gave us this church, this family that we can gather together with, that we can encourage each other and support each other, grow together and do our lives together. I just, I I pray this a lot, God, but I'm just praying again today that you would help us to get a vision of what it is you want us to be in this place at this time. And that we would just grow into that. And Father, I want to pray one last thing. If there are people here who are not yet part of your family, that today would be a day where they would feel like, yes, it's okay, and they would say, I'm in with Jesus, and I'm in with this church family. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.